Well, hello and welcome to this first episode of my new podcast, Advancing the Profession. I'm Rob Jackson, Director of Rob Jackson Consulting Limited. And the whole reason behind this podcast, if you've not heard the trailer, is to try and fill a gap that I think is out there for leaders of volunteer engagement around the world to focus on more advanced issues in the work of leading and managing volunteers. And I'm going to speak to a series of guests over the course of this first and potentially only series of the podcast. Um, who have got lots of experience, lots of ideas, lots of thoughts around advanced volunteer engagement. I'm really pleased that we're kicking off with a very long-standing colleague and friend of mine, Martin J. Cowling. We're going to be exploring over the next few minutes a whole range of issues to do with advanced volunteer engagement. So I'm going to say welcome, Martin, and perhaps you'd just like to introduce yourself for our listeners so they know a bit about you. Rob, I'm I'm thrilled and excited to be part of your new series. And it's it struck me that you probably should have done this a couple of years ago. So I'm very excited that you're doing it now. And it feels very, very timely. Just a bit of background about myself. I have worked in the community sector for over 35 years. I started when I was three years old. And I have worked in the community sector as a volunteer, a hands-on manager of volunteers, a researcher, a manager and a consultant. And I have worked with very small grassroots organisations through to some of the largest not-for-profits in the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, and Asia. I have been fascinated by volunteering since I first volunteered to help people in the community with finding activities to do in school holidays. And that was when I was just a teenager. And from there, I have worked with organizations across the world in 16 countries now, I can count. And I'm also currently working on my first book, Rob, which I'm very excited about, hopefully be published next year. Cool. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, it should have been done a couple of years ago. Honestly, I should have probably done this about five years ago. But one of those things that that when you're really busy, you just don't tend to focus on it. But I'm really excited for this. I'm so pleased that you're able to join us for this first episode. So I suppose let's get so we've both been around the block in volunteer management for a long time you said 35 years I've been around for about 27 years how do you see volunteer management having evolved over the time that you've been involved in it you know kind of has it looked different now from when you started? I think we've evolved and controversially, I think we've devolved. I'm from the time when volunteer management consisted of writing down the names of the people who turned up on the day. And we welcomed Mary Jo and her dad and their family who we'd never seen before. And we said, Mary Jo and your dad, please take this disabled person out for the day and we will see you in eight hours. This is pre-mobile phones, pre-first aid. And we just... We trusted everybody to do a whole lot of things. In hindsight, we know that we made some mistakes with that model. We know that people were actually um, abused sexually, emotionally, and physically. But we also know we did a lot of good for the community. I'm not wanting to justify one or the other. So from there, we moved into the stage where we, we had to have policies. We had to have rules. We had to organize things. And so we gradually built up volunteering. We, we created these positions called managers or leaders of volunteering. We started to pay people. We started to organize. We started to legislate. And we started bringing a whole lot of protections. And, and I'm one of those people who said, we've got to make sure that the vulnerable in our community are protected. I remember that we were sending people in one of my jobs was sending people into people's homes to bathe people, feed people, 
cook for people. And the most information we had on them was their home telephone number. So we've moved from that to a position where we're saying, if we're sending people into people's homes, we need to make sure they're police checked. And then we, we wrote the government in. And then I think we swung too far. So now if I want to volunteer for anything, almost anywhere in the Western world, I have to do an application form, I have to do a police check, I have to wait around. We sell volunteering as this amazing experience, but I apply to be a volunteer and six months later, I mightn't hear anything. And then on top of that, governments thought, this is fantastic. We've got this magic thing called volunteering. We're going to outsource all of the government services we can to our not-for-profits who are going to look after this pseudo human resources workforce that we've now employed inverted commas, because we've put so many constraints on volunteering. So we now have this highly organized volunteering structure that I think is actually putting people off. And then we have a parallel volunteering structure developing across the world where people aren't volunteering. They're getting involved with their community. They're helping their neighbors out. And we're not capturing any of that. And we even have this mentality that says that's not proper volunteering. Proper volunteering is this highly structured, organized thing. And I think that we're kind of missing out on that community spirit. And I'd like to see us swing the pendulum back so that we're protecting people, but we're actually encouraging people to be involved in as many ways as possible. And I think COVID has actually shown a lot of the cracks in our structures and systems. We had saw the government hand a lot of services over to the not-for-profit sector across the Western world, from Germany to Australia, to the US, to the UK, to Canada. And then we've cut, 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 cut. And suddenly we're now cutting volunteer managers and managers of volunteers, which I think is a false economy. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. I, I completely agree with you. And I think what's been interesting is to see the elevation of awareness of that really informal volunteering over the last year, certainly here in the UK, you know, that informal volunteering has been the way that communities have survived during the course of the pandemic. And it's it's fascinating the extent to which a lot of that formality that you, you talk about was dropped by organisations overnight as a necessity in order to get people out there supporting in communities. I think of our NHS volunteer responders scheme. I applied online to do that, took me five minutes, I was approved in 24 hours. If I'd have tried to do something like that six months previously, pre-COVID, it would have taken me six weeks to have been approved to do it. So there's a big question for me then in all of that as to, well, other than COVID, what changed to suddenly reduce the risk to such an extent? But I think your point about that growth of, I mean, our friend Andy talks about it, Andy Fryer talks about it as the move from a people profession to a paper profession is absolutely spot on. And what worries me is we have, as a profession, we've kind of embraced that administrative aspect of what we do. I mean, in America, the term volunteer administrator has been around for a long time. It's never really been popular here in the UK. And I think a lot of people find their comfort and their security in our profession in doing that and actually stripping some of that away which we may well have to do in future because I think it's going to how we balance that formal and informal is going to be a really defining point for us over the next few years risks people feeling quite vulnerable in volunteer management because they're losing what they're comfortable with and what they feel defines their work 
I think one of the ways that we've justified our existence in organizations has been to scare people with the risk factors. And instead of, and I'll come back to this point, Rob, because it's one of my passionate points and you probably eyes will glaze over because I repeat this so many times, the true value of us as managers of volunteers is the impact our volunteers have. And there's three impacts. The first is the impact on the person. The second is the impact on the organization. And the third is the impact on the client or the community or the cause. And those are the things that we should be selling. But instead, we've sold a volunteering on this is how much money you're saving, or this is how much money our organizations are worth, which are the same things. And it's a, I find that a very annoying, irritating, and nonsensical measure. Am I clear about that? <laughs> and the second thing is that we can say to people, oh my goodness, we could be causing the deaths of people or the injuries of people or the assaults of people. We've got to have strict procedures in place. And it always fascinates me that if we go into a meeting and we say to people in our organizations, I want to run an end of year thank you event and take make recognition of our volunteers this year and the impact they've made. And they, the organization says, well, look, we can probably spare 250 pounds. And can you get the volunteers to bring a plate of cookies? However, if I say I need 4,000 pounds for a UBUT advanced database, which will scan every volunteer in, somehow the organization says here's 4,000 pounds. And we seem to be able to justify that. And I'm concerned that we need as leaders of volunteers, and if we want to be advanced volunteer managers, we need to be selling our organization on the real impact of volunteering. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it segues beautifully into the kind of next point that I I wanted to ask you about then, because if that's the evolution that we've gone through and the kind of contemporary context that we're in, what does an effective leader of volunteer engagement look like? What is advanced volunteer management? Is it simply how long we've spent in the field? Is it how we kick on from the move from people to paper? What is advanced? I, and I want to be very care- so careful, Rob, that I don't insult anybody. So, you know, if a volunteer is a passionate bureaucrat, I'm sorry, manager of volunteers is a passionate bureaucrat, that's fine. However, and I'm very conveniently have a seven letter response, which spells advanced. So please bear with me as I take it through. And this has always been my mantra and it's been my mantra for a hundred years. And the first is that an advanced manager of volunteers is somebody who is adventurous, who is prepared to step out of the norm and be able to do things differently and in new ways. And the ones that I've seen that made the real impact are the ones that have been brave enough. And one of the things that concerns me is over the last few years, we've actually sucked the adventure out of the field. And we've sucked the adventure, so we've made it as nice and safe as possible. I was talking to a manager of volunteers uh, a couple of years back in the US, and uh, she said to me, I cannot get my organization at all to take an interest in managing volunteers. I'm completely, I'm, you know, basically I'm sitting in the broom closet doing (laughs) magic things to volunteers and I've ignored. If something went wrong, they would notice. And I said, very simple question, what can you do? to get the attention of the CEO and make you realize the impact you're having. And she said, am I allowed to get the attention of the CEO? And I said, part of your job. Mm -hmm. So what she did was she told me that every year, one of the volunteers would give her a check as a donation and she would give that check to the fundraising department. And that would be the end of the story. She said, this time I put it into an envelope and put a note with it and sent it to the CEO and said, another example of our volunteer program. And she said, the CEO had me in his office for half an hour for the first time in five years. And she said, you gave me permission to be adventurous. 
The second thing is I think an advanced volunteer manager has direction, has strategy for the program and says this is how volunteering helps the mission or the cause of our organisation. And it amazes me, Rob, wherever I go in the world, I say to people, how does your volunteer program link to the mission of the organisation? And people go, oh, they save money. Yeah. That's, not the, that's not the mission of your organisation. I don't care if you're feeding people in the street or you're planting trees in the forest or you're restoring old buildings or you're sending people to Mars. Whatever your mission is, your volunteers are working to get you to that cause. And so if you can't articulate to me how your volunteer program links to the mission, you're not an advanced volunteer manager. You're just measuring pieces of paper. I'm sorry to be, offend the people. Of me. The third thing is gonna surprise people and it's the V in the advance. I actually think the best volunteer managers have been or are volunteers themselves. We can be the worst volunteers because we expect certain standards and I've been appalled at how I've been treated as a volunteer sometimes. I have no airs and graces and other times I've had fantastic experiences. But one of the ways of learning how to manage or not manage volunteering is to be a volunteer yourself. And if you haven't tasted the Kool-Aid of volunteering, then you don't understand what it means to be a manager of volunteers. Yeah. If that's controversial, I apologize. Don't apologize. I think it's great. The fourth thing is that an advanced volunteer manager is an advocate of volunteering. And they advocate for volunteering every conversation they have. I'm not talking about advocating in a tiresome way. Volunteers are magic. Volunteers are wonderful. Volunteer, you know, we know all those goodwill statements. But you need to be saying to the board, this is the impact of the volunteers in your organisation. I'll give you a real life example from when I was a manager of volunteers in one organisation. Yeah. The annual report coming out. Now, before I turned up, our 1,500 volunteers got one sentence in the annual report, and it was the same sentence every year. We would like to thank all the wonderful volunteers who give their time to the organisation. Now, there are different variations of that, but it was basically the same. So in this year, and this is how old it is, Rob, I walked down to the person who was organising the annual report's office, physically walked down, not an email, and I handed them a USB stick. Okay, that's how old it is. And I said, here's my page for the annual report. And they looked at me and said, you don't get a page. And I said, well, here's my content for it. So that year we got half a page. The following year we got a page. And the year after that we got two pages with four photos. Brilliant. But that's an example of advocating. Likewise, I meet volunteer managers and say, what do, you, what do you tell your CEO about the program? They said, oh, the CEO has never invited me to send a report up. I said, you send a report up. Include stories and talk about the impact because most boards and most CEOs are not sitting in their offices going, I wonder how the volunteer program is going until someone sends them a letter saying, I don't like your volunteer manager or, or something grabs their attention. It is the job of the manager of volunteers to grab the attention of the board and the management team. And they have to find different ways of doing it. One of the most powerful ways is to get your volunteers to talk to board members. It's, one, it's getting their stories up. Um, the other one is networking. This is one of the most isolated roles in a not-for-profit and people don't realize how isolated it is. No one, this is, sounds like a woe me story, no one in a not-for-profit understands what the manager of volunteers really does. Yeah. They just think they're either doing babysitting or magic or a combination of the two. 
Occasionally you get somebody who gets it, but we need to be networking across our organizations all the time. And we need to be networking outside our organizations. Now, having said that, I have met some volunteer managers who don't spend any time in their organizations because they're so dismayed. They spend all of their time networking, not suggesting that. There's no excuse in the, in the 21st century to be isolated in our organizations. Yeah. We need to be networking across. I went to a, a, a workshop in um, Texas and I was talking to some people there who had paid the princely sum of $5 American to hear me speak. And one woman said to me, I'm really sorry, Martin, I can only stay for 40 minutes of your two-hour workshop because my organization has asked me to do it during my lunch break. And so I have to drive back. She said, I'll be a bit late anyway. And I'm like, networking is a vital part of your job. The other thing that we need to be good at, Rob, as an advanced volunteer manager is cutting through. We need to be able to cut through the BS. We need to be able to cut through things and we need to be able to find solutions to problems all the time. Let me give you a real life example of an organization I was with in Australia. The city council said, we brought in new rules to protect people because it was a food charity. Every one of your volunteers will have to do a full-time five-day week, five-day, one-week training course to be a volunteer if you want to keep your local government accreditation. Now, can you imagine saying to your volunteers who turn up once a month, once a, every two weeks for three-hour shift, I'd like you to take a week off work and come full-time. Now, our CEO said, oh, dear, that's terrible. Oh, well, just get some new volunteers that can do a five-day course. And I said, no, 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 no. So we turned it upside down and we actually made it that we trained volunteers on the job. We got permission from the city council to do it. And... For our volunteers that were the most dedicated and most committed and were the shift leaders, we said, as a present, as a bonus to you, you can do a free five-day food training course. So people were like, oh, wow, fantastic. The organization loves me so much. They're sending me on this course. So instead of saying, and we actually got accredited by the city council. And when we got inspected, they said, if other food businesses in the city behave the way you did, we would be very relieved. So the seventh and final thing, is that we need to be excited about the impact of volunteering. And if I haven't said it before, I'll say it again the rest of my life. There are three impacts on the of volunteering. The first is on the volunteer. The second is on the organization. And the third is on the community. Let me give you a real life example of the impact of a volunteer on the organization. Last year, when COVID hit my community, they called for volunteers to come and pack food parcels for people who were day laborers. So these are people who get turned up on the morning, they get employed on a building sites or hotel gardens or whatever, that all shut down during COVID, they have no money, therefore they have no food. So we were making food packages for them. And all I did was I turned up and I packed noodles, exciting, noodle, 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 noodle. Anyway, I said to the, I said to the person, where do you get your noodles from? And they said, oh, we get it from XYZ company. And I said, XYZ company, I know one of their senior managers. If I call XYZ company and see if I can get you a discount on the noodles, would that help you? So sure enough, I called XYZ company. They said, we'll be happy, delighted to donate some noodles and give you the rest of the noodles at cost price. So I was just a two hour a week packing volunteer and suddenly I saved this organization tens of thousands of pounds over the course of the COVID period. So that's an example of how our volunteers can impact our organizations. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you, I think that acrostic acronym for, for advance is, is really, really good. And I think it's fascinating on that last point, 
you know, when you look back at some of what you were just talking about, the point of the, the CEO suddenly being struck by the fact that a volunteer made a financial donation, you know, there's this tendency and we have it as volunteer managers and organizations certainly have it that you bring the volunteer in, you stick them in the nice, comfortable role that you're happy with the volunteers doing because they don't threaten anybody else. They don't rock the boat and then away they go and they get the stuff and nobody ever really talks to these people in enough, and again, because maybe we're hiding behind the kind of comfort zone of the paperwork and the admin to understand the breadth of who these people are and what skills they're bringing and what they could offer. And that's not to say they want to do that because many of those people may not want to do what they did in their professional lives or want to do what they do in their professional lives. But the connections, and I, I'm always mindful of the children's charity here, NSPCC here in the UK, had a campaign um, called the Full Stop Campaign. It was about ending child cruelty, full stop, period, for our American listeners. And one of the things that I found out subsequently was two of their biggest financial donations to that campaign, donations of well over a million pounds, did not come through their major gift fundraising team. They came through some of their community fundraising volunteers because a volunteer who was already active for an SPCC knew a neighbor who was clearly well off and they said, would you give some money to the campaign? And they wrote them a check for over a million pounds. I always kind of joke when I share that with groups that what we need to do is we need to find those volunteers in our community. But if we don't know our volunteers well enough, we're never gonna find those people because we just don't know them. Yeah, really interesting, really interesting. What, what I really welcome your thoughts on, Martin, because I think, as I say, that, that kind of advanced acrostics, absolutely spot on, is how do we get people in our profession to embrace those kinds of things? And that's not because people aren't looking. I think there are a lot of people, certainly when I posted a blog post earlier on this year about advanced volunteer management training, I probably got the biggest response I've had to one of my blog posts for a very, very long time. I think there's an appetite for this kind of learning. And it's not just because of COVID, but it's just not there. It isn't there. It isn't available. You know, there's loads of volunteer management 101 courses online or workshops through local volunteer centres. But there's a long history of, uh, you know, CSV did the Institute for Advanced Volunteer Management, which you were involved in starting in the in the 90s. Similar kind of events happened around the Points of Light conference. You and Andy organised for a number of years the advanced volunteer management retreats in Australia and New Zealand. So, A, it would be interesting to get your reflection on those kinds of events. But B, I'd be really interested to know from you what you think kind of needs, where's the gap? What's not there? What do we need to do as a profession to make sure that we've got the support to move volunteer managers in the right direction when they want to and when they need to? I think one of the things that occurs, and there's some research I did in 2006 that has been replicated in recent research from Canada, is that about 40% of volunteer managers don't stay in the profession longer than two years. Right. So we kind of have in our minds that all the time we have people who are new and most managers of volunteers have never managed volunteers before. They come into the come into management of volunteers as a stepping stone to a real job, or because they thought it looked interesting, or because they think they can do it. And I think I joke all the time: this is one of the most diverse professions. Mm -hmm. I have met people who were janitors, printers, 
everything you can imagine before they became manager of volunteers. I've talked about this with you before. Very few people at school go, when I grow up, I want to be a manager of volunteers. And there's very few courses in the world that even mention volunteer management. So those people create a huge amount of demand. That 40% of people are like, I need training in how to recruit a volunteer. I need training in how to manage a volunteer. So volunteer centers are very attuned to providing that training. And most of the consultants in the field provide that basic training, how to recruit a volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. And it's valid training. I'm not wanting to knock that. The other issue we have is that most people working in the not-for-profit, NGO, peak bodies, government sectors right across the world, from the UAE to UK to USA, don't stay long in those organizations either. So... And they've not come from management, volunteer management backgrounds either. So they come into their volunteer centers and they think, well, we just duplicate the training we've done every year. The people who last in the profession and the people who are probably meet my acoustic don't call for that volunteer training. They just get on with their jobs and they do what they can to network and to share ideas, but they don't actually demand it in the same way. And I think that I want to give permission to your listeners to start contacting their volunteer centers and say, I need something that's more advanced. Mm -hmm. I need something that is more than what color should my recruitment form be, or where should I put the link for volunteering on my website? So I think there's a number of things that we need to be doing. The first is that we need to be seeing our peak bodies offer more. The second thing is that we need our volunteer managers to be saying we need more. And the third is we need to revisit some of those things that we did in the past, which were actually successful. So the, I know the Australasian Retreat for Advanced Volunteer Management had impact on a number of people who chose to stay longer in the profession, who chose to be involved in higher positions in the profession, who became advocates, who became writers, who have done a lot of things as a result of that. Um, so I think we need to be revisiting some of those things again. I'm not saying we, we take a model from 10 years ago and we say it's exactly the same model. The other thing um, we need to be doing is we need to be saying to our conferences, where's our advanced stream? So if you look at the national conferences in many countries in the world, it's same old, same old. You know, how to motivate a volunteer or what motivates my volunteers, which is valid stuff, but it's not more than that. We need to be offering subjects that are like more than 101 volunteering. Or I've been a volunteer manager for a while. What's the next step? Or what does an advanced volunteer manager look like? Or how can I make a real, real impact on my organization? And the sad thing is that when people lodge those proposals to conferences around the world, they get refused. And yet I remember I used to fill rooms with topics like that. My conference organizers were always shocked because they thought everybody just wanted the basic stuff. Yeah. But there's a real hunger out there for that advanced stuff. Yeah, I think there is. And I think that was evidenced, as I say, by the response that I got to my blog post earlier on yeah. this year, 2021, that we I've never had so many people emailing back in response to a blog post saying, yeah, count me in, I'm interested, I want to be involved. You've been involved in a number of those advanced events. There are a lot of people listening to this who never got to go to the Australasian retreat, never got to go to the Institute for Advanced Volunteer Management. So, I mean, we don't have the time to kind of paint the picture as to what it was like as a participant and as a faculty member at those kinds of things. But 
what do you think in terms of the way that they were delivered or the approach that was taken that was different from a t- traditional training or conference? What, what would that look like? Kind of try and paint a little bit of that picture for listeners who were not involved so that they can get a sense of how it might look in the future if something like that started or how they could pitch it to their local association for, for their next conference. So there were four things that I think that we tried to do in the Australasian retreat, which weren't always taken to the other retreats. And the first was to treat our participants as adults who were in charge of their learning journey. And one of the most successful things that we did was we did a thing called support circles, which where we had four peers in a group. And basically we gave people... Each, they met four times and for each of those sessions, one of those people were the focus of the other three people. And they talked about their journey, where they were at or a problem or an issue. And then the other three people would support them. Now, we probably ran in the total time I was involved, we ran about 76 support circles. Well, in fact, exactly 76 support circles. And of those 68 worked brilliantly and eight failed, right. which I think is a pretty good ratio. And when I say failed, didn't work for one or more of the participants. But most people walked away saying, this was one of the most useful things of the event. So every all the time we were thinking, what can we do that empowers the participants to have their own learning? So it's not just a passive experience, it's actually an active experience. The second thing is that we actually set it up that people actually had to apply and had to show that they were prepared to be an advanced thinker. So we actually had questions that people had to answer before they came along. So unlike most conferences like, please come, please come, please come, we actually said to people, we will vet you. And for most of the retreats, we actually had the peak body for volunteer managers involved in vetting the participants. The reality is we, we never turned anyone away. Because people self-selected, they went, my goodness, if that's the process, I'm obviously not going to be part of it. So we had people that were coming prepared to learn at an advanced level. And we made no apology. We said, if you're looking for how to recruit a volunteer in three steps, you're not going to get it here. And all of the content was designed to stretch people's thinking and to push people. I remember we had Jane Cravens. And one of the beauties about Jane Cravens is that if she offends people, she offends people. And she and Susan Susan Ellis offended people all the time. And part of me was like cringing, oh my God, stop offending people. And part of me is like, you know, one woman said to me, I have never been so insulted. I won't tell you which one insulted her, Susan or Jane. You can work that out later. And she said, I was so angry. I steamed for a month. And then I turned my entire program upside down. And I am so grateful to to the person who challenged me. And I don't suggest that we should be going around insulting people. That's, you know, Jane and Susan didn't wake up in the morning going, I want to insult people. But, but you know, they were like, think differently. Think yeah. on a different level. Come on, get there. You know, and you can almost see them shaking people. And that challenged people and moved people up. And the other thing was that one of the things that I wanted to do was to give permission to people permission to fail, permission to take risks, permission to change. So we had people who were clearly advanced thinking, but were trapped by the mentality they'd inherited in their organization. And so we're like, you've got to think outside these boxes. And that's one of the things that I've, and I continue to do that. One of the things I do at the moment is I mentor people in organizations around the world. And the number of conversations I have with people and they look at me and they go, can I really do that? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
I give you permission and you can tell your CEO to call me up if you want to double check. Tell them that the, you know, one of the world's experts on volunteer management said you can do this. But sometimes people just need that permission to be an advanced manager of volunteers. And that's one of the things that we want to do with the, the events. I can honestly say, having been a part of one of your retreats, having been a part of the Institute for Advanced Volunteer Management over here in the UK and on the faculty in the States as well, when the Volunteer Centre in Battle Creek, Michigan, as it was, uh, ran two of those events, they are very different. The structure of them is very different from a traditional conference, regardless of the model that they take. I would absolutely agree with you that onus on you as an individual to take responsibility for your learning is so, so important. They, they were transformative events in my career. Um, I can absolutely point to you know certain things that, that did that. And I think more are associations when they're looking at conferences, and let's face it, everybody's looking at how do we do conferences? How do we do training differently now? because of the way that we've all had to adapt during the pandemic. There's a golden opportunity here for people to be looking differently at how they do the delivery of these kinds of things so that the more mainstream conferences become more advanced, but also how they can deliver specific advanced content. And I think those insights are incredibly helpful. So Andy Fryer and I developed some golden rules for right. our retreat. And one of them was we didn't over-program. So many places try and fit as much content in so the people are going home with their heads bursting. And we would look at each other and we would actually remove content. And the other thing was that people often use, say, we're going to have an hour lunch break, but we're going to cut into that lunch break and finish early. And we were like, no, the lunch break stays one hour because people sitting around talking is actually powerful. So a half an hour morning tea break. And I'd have speakers like, oh, can I go? I'm like, no, we're keeping those times. They're sacrosanct. And because... And I see this again and again, people over-program and then they cut the meal times and free times and they're really important. And, and I think at those advanced retreats, that's even more vital because you're not doing a 45 minute workshop, which frankly, nobody can learn anything substantive in a 45 minute workshop. It's a much more in-depth experience. And to cut that cheats the participants and to not give people the time to reflect and get some headspace afterwards, cheats the participants as well. And it, as you say, completely cuts across that idea of individuals taking responsibility for their own learning. I'm very mindful of time, so I don't want to take much longer, but I, I suppose the last question, uh, the last bit of thinking I'd like you to share with us, Martin, is something that's a bit action-oriented, because I'm always a big believer in my training that people learn something, but they go away and do something afterwards. And I know from when we've worked together, you kind of share that approach as well. If people listening to this podcast wanted to now take an action to take responsibility for doing more advanced learning in their career, what two or three things at most would you suggest that they do? Resources they check out, places they go, thinking they do, questions they ask. I'm going to answer that by using the acoustic I used before. And the first one is do something adventurous do something that is out of your normal comfort zone and just write it down as you're listening now and go, I will do X and then just do it. The second thing is if you don't know what your volunteer program directional strategy is, the D in advance, develop it now and develop with a group of your volunteers and your paid staff. You must know your direction if you're doing nothing else. The third is if you're a manager of volunteers and you're not volunteering or have never volunteered, sign up to be a volunteer 
right now. The fourth is if you have not advocated in the last 30 days for your program, go and advocate in the next 30 days to your manager, to your CEO, I don't care, to your newspaper, whoever else. The fifth thing is the end in advance is go and network with someone in your organization to sell volunteering to them and network to someone outside your organization. The next one is cut through something, cut some red tape out of your program. Look for somewhere that you can make it simpler and easier to volunteer while you're protecting your people. And the last one, the seventh one, which is be excited about the impact of your volunteering, work out how you measure the impact of your volunteering on your individual volunteers. Have you asked them each year, how did volunteering change your life this year? And if it didn't change their life, think about how you can make it better the next year. The second thing is think about how that volunteering is impacting your organization. And the last thing is how is your volunteer program, how are your volunteers impacting your community so advance adventurous direction volunteering yourself advocate network cut through and be excited that's brilliant thank you so much martin that's really really great for any of the listeners who want to find out a bit more or maybe get in touch with you how, how do they do that a couple of ways the first is i'm on linkedin martin j cowley the second way is if you just contact Rob Jackson and say, I'd like to talk to that guy with the weird accent, um, I'm more than happy. And um, I have clients from uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, through to Canada in multiple time zones. And I'm happy to work with people, mentor people, listen to people. Um, I have conversations with people where I had one woman who spent 45 minutes of the hour we scheduled crying. Um, so you're more than welcome to call me and cry. Brilliant. There's an invitation for everyone. Thank you so much, Martin. Really appreciate you sparing some of your time with us to kick off Advancing the Profession. Lots more episodes are going to follow with loads of other people, uh, some of whom are individuals that Martin was referencing throughout his comments there who have been on his advanced retreats, have developed as a consequence of that advanced learning. So it's great to see that legacy continuing. Thank you very much, Martin J. Cowling. Mm-hmm.